0: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This is another episode about gender, specifically, what's happening in the realm of medical protocols for young people seeking gender reassignment surgery or medicalized transition. And there are a lot of those young people now. If you know this podcast, you know that I cover this subject a lot. You also probably know that I'm very careful about how I cover it. It's an incredibly complex topic, and there's a lot of noise at the extremes. The people I've had on the podcast to talk about it are, in my opinion, some of the best thinkers and researchers on the topic, and that's included clinicians, journalists, researchers, and other interested parties, some of whom are themselves transgender. I'm returning to the subject this week because we are fresh off the annual meeting of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH. And that is the group that decides, among other things, at what age a child or adolescent can begin to take hormones or even have surgery to affirm an opposite sex identity. My guest, Colin Wright, is an evolutionary biologist who has been writing about the complexities of the new gender wars since 2018. Now, Colin could have come on the podcast at any given time over the last few years uh, to talk about any number of things, but I wanted to talk to him now specifically about the implications of the new WPATH guidelines and what they mean for kids who are being seen at gender clinics all over the country. I also wanted to get at a question that I probably hear more than any other from people who follow this issue closely, and that is this. Given the pervasive messaging that suggests that anyone who asks any questions about gender youth medicine is acting out of hatred, how do we broach the subject with well-meaning people, often our close friends and family members, who seem unwilling to have a broader discussion? So here's my conversation with Colin Wright. Colin Wright, welcome to the Unspeakable.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited.
0: Well, I wanted to have you on for a long time and it just seemed like a good time to have you. I want to talk about a lot of things, including how you came to this subject. I think you you came to it the way a lot of us did through kind of a side door. So, before we plunge into sort of the burning questions I have this week, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what you were doing before this and and how you came into thinking so much about gender. I mean, I know you're an evolutionary biologist, but weren't weren't you like doing stuff around ecology and like totally a different world?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was a an evolutionary behavioral ecologist. I, I studied uh, social insect and arachnid behaviors, the collective personalities of insect societies. That oh, type of stuff. okay.
0: I thought that was going to be like, you studied like who recycles and who doesn't. No.
1: Yeah. There's always like, like a okay. yeah, people will think ecology is like same thing as conservation or like just because it's got eco, but it's really just sort of the interaction of organisms in their environment more broadly. So I was doing that. I was working at Penn State before at the, at the moment where I decided to sort of start tackling a lot of the sex and gender issues. But I think the, the genesis happened a little bit before where it was just sort of this creeping awareness that the conversations about sex and gender were not just getting more kind of confused, but they were just getting more um, jumbled together. Like before we had been asked to separate somebody's sex from someone's gender identity, and a lot of people went along with that. And then that sort of division became slowly eroded over time, where I had colleagues sharing articles about, is you know, sex is a social construct. It's a spectrum. There's five sexes. There's ten sexes. All this stuff, and I was just really blown away by by this type of thing because I had been sort of in this in this fear, like on on the side of my 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 scientific research. I enjoyed like writing and debunking things. I was really big into sort of debunking the creationists and intelligent design people back in the day. And so, when I sort of applied my my debunking mentality to this stuff, you know, I thought it would just turn into a regular scientific discussion with my colleagues. But, you know, instead of saying that, you know, I'm wrong about there just being two sexes because X, Y, and Z, and because here's a paper here you can read and and whatever, it was just, you're a, you're a bigot, you're a transphobe, you're this, that, and the other that just totally blindsided me. And so I I really just couldn't let it go because they weren't addressing my points. And so I kept kind of writing articles about this, doing my best to just have these conversations. And it really just got worse and worse for me. (laughs) And so I, for some reason, it just like consumed me that this was a big problem that was going on Um, And at first it was just the problem was people were wrong about what biological sex was. But then that quickly led me down these rabbit holes to like, well, what are the social consequences of these, you know, this reality denial, this type of stuff and these beliefs. And that what led me into the whole, you know, gender ideology that's underpinning all this led me into, you know, areas where males are trying to compete in female sports and go into women's prisons. And then this whole like child uh, medicalization going on about gender nonconformity. So, uh, I ended up leaving academia because you know there had been I'd written a bunch of articles and it caused a lot of people to swarm on me on social media and they were trying to you know get me fired from my job and writing uh, articles to my my department and things like that and so I decided to to sort of leave and I worked at Colette for a little bit then I ended up kind of going on my own doing a Substack stuff so that's what I do now
0: yeah so in it was around 2018 when you left. Academia, or when you started seeing yeah. these articles? Okay. And it was, was 2018
1: when I first wrote my first sort of article for Quillette that was my problem with the whole sex denialism type stuff.
0: Right. And just these were like scientific people giving you these articles and insisting that this was not a debate that could be had, right? Am I, these were not social scientists. These were like people in the biological sciences.
1: Yeah, I first saw it among my friends who were PhD students in sort of these some were cultural anthropologists, some were physical anthropologists. But then the people in my actual department would double down on this stuff too, and they were they ended up sharing all these things too. So evolutionary biologists, people who are working in geneticists, even microbiologists, things that are pretty distant from the whole social sciences. Yeah.
0: Wow. And so, was the gender uh, was the youth gender medicine aspect in play at all at that time?
1: I'm sure I know it was going on, but it was not anywhere on my radar at the time. That was, that was pretty distant from my thoughts at the time at the, at the time I was just like, some people are wrong about science. And if I just can show them using evidence and stuff, then this'll, I'll be able to correct them on this, you know, in a very friendly way. <laughs> that was my mentality.
0: Yeah, it would be so simple. I think we all have that moment. Oh, I just I'll just explain <laughs> it. I'll just yeah. explain it and they'll if see If I that can only right.
1: make my words a little clearer, like that's that was sort of my mentality going into it. And I realized that there's there's actually no combination of words <laughs> that will work.
0: Uh, well, okay, so there's a lot to cover here, but I want to talk about this most recent meeting of WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. And the reason for that is, you know, I've talked a lot about this subject on the podcast and I talk about it a lot in my life. And there still seems to be a lack of consensus, even among people who are like really, really into the subject, as to how often kids are being medically transitioned, how often surgeries occur, things like mastectomies on kids, say, under 18. There's always like a lot of people saying, well, it's not actually happening that often. So I guess my question is, what do we know for a fact with respect to what's happening? And what was the news coming out of this most recent WPATH meeting?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the claims that people make about how this isn't happening, it's very small minority population, uh, they're using a lot of these, these sort of old statistics, old data on sort of rates of people who are identifying as trans over like a decade ago, and some of these put it at like, you know, 0.5% of the population, things like that. It's really ballooned since then. I mean, just over the past 10 years, there's been between a 20 and 40 fold rise and the number of kids who are showing up at these gender clinics claiming to have uh, gender dysphoria or being confused about their gender. You know, it's, it's pretty widespread. You know, the, the, it's really difficult to get numbers on exactly like what percentage of the population is getting medicalized and this type of thing. But it's important to notice that there has been a, a shift in the terminology. The, we used to be describing people who are trans. Well, that was short for transsexual. And this included things like having a very strong cross-sex identity, having gender dysphoria, wishing to live as the opposite sex type of thing. And then around a, mm. a decade ago, sort of during the Obama administration time, there had been a really concerted shift in the language and trans no longer referred to transsexual, but it referred to being transgender. Okay. And that might not seem like a big, a big shift, but it, it means something completely different than transsexual does. Okay, so I'll, I'll for example, uh, so it's basically transgender now just encompasses common gender nonconformity, like tomboys or uh, feminine, uh, you know, f- feminine males. So I'll just I want to read you a few definitions from these these major institutions that we have and how they're actually defining what it means to be transgender. So this is Planned Parenthood. They say. So gender, they define as a social legal status and a set of expectations from society about behaviors, characteristics, and thoughts. Then they say it's more about how you're expected to act because of your sex. Uh, They they talk about the gender binary as being, quote, the idea that gender is strictly an either or option of male, men, masculine, or female, woman, feminine, uh, based on the sex assigned at birth. When we go to the human rights campaign, they define transgender as an umbrella term for people whose gender identity and or expression differs from the cultural expectations based on the sex they were assigned at birth. American Psychological Association, transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior doesn't conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. There's a couple of this. I'll just read the last the Center for Disease Control. <laughs> Transgender is an umbrella term for uh, persons whose gender identity or expression, then in parentheses, masculine, feminine, or other, is different from their sex, male or female, at birth. So this shift in definition is really just making it so anyone who's gender nonconforming, if you're not adhering to these, these social expectations of, or the roles that are associated with being male and female, this is now what's considered being transgender. And so this umbrella of what is considered to be trans now has sort of really exploded to encompass just tomboys and effeminate uh, males. And this is causing a lot of confusion to kids because they think, well, I'm, am I trans or am I identifying as a boy? What does it mean to identify as a boy? well, they identi- they define man and boy and girl and woman as according to these social roles and expectations. And so if you don't agree with those, you're trans or you know, non-binary at the very least. And so th- this, this type of confusion often then triggers sort of a visit to like a gender clinic because if a kid says they're confused about their gender, which how could they not be in these sort of uh, situations where they're asked to identify as a boy or a girl and based on stereotypes.
0: Yeah, really. Depends on the time of day.
1: Yeah. 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 Then you have this sort of this whole system of affirmation care, which is you're not allowed to question the cross-sex identity of any kid who comes into your clinic. And then we have this system of, you know, well, let's give people a pause button so they can think about it more in the form of these these drugs that block their puberty. But then we also know that almost every single kid who's put on these puberty-blocking drugs ends up taking cross-sex hormones, uh, proceeding onto that, so becoming sterilized and continuing with their transition. It appears to just sort of make more concrete their their rejection of their, their sex body, if you will. So it, most a lot of the kids, I think it's up to about 60% of the kids who do end up going to these gender clinics are eventually medicalized to some degree. So we're still looking for the stats of, you know, what percentage of the population but new, new stats from, you know, the CDC actually came out with, uh, I think the Williams Institute reported that, you know, up to 2% now of kids are identifying as trans, but just talking to people, some teachers in their classroom, it can be, you know, one out of every four, one out of every three students now who is requesting either different pronouns or they consider themselves trans.
0: And that's because it's coming up in clusters, like we're seeing. Yeah, it-
1: it's 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 a combination of you know, this peer social contagion. I do think, you know, the social acceptance, you know, you know, it's sort of this mainstreamed uh, idea now. And then, as I mentioned, you have this definitional shift of what it means to be trans, um, that if when kids go to the ACLU or the HRC, or they look up, you know, what's the American Psychiatric, Psychiatric Association saying about whether I'm trans? Well, they, they read these definitions and yeah I don't I don't identify with the cultural expectations typically associated with being female or male, therefore I'm trans. So it's almost anywhere they go unless you're just like this perfect stereotype of masculinity or femininity uh, then you're considered trans by this definition so it's it's really no wonder that we see this explosion in people who especially kids who think they're trans just because we have this this definitional change
0: right it's like the the entire drama club. Uh, Exactly. Unless you're the football quarterback or the head cheerleader, you're uh, shuffled off into this category. Exactly. Well, okay. I mean, I want to kind of take this in in pieces because I'm assuming of all of the kids that would wind up at a gender clinic, there's going to be some percentage of them who have genuine severe dysphoria, right? So a kid that even before this became something in the culture would have struggled with this and might have sought help for it. So there's, there's that cohort. And then there's kids with maybe a constellation of other mental health issues. I I know there's a big overlap with autism, for instance. So there would be kids who maybe should be assessed for comorbidities, other issues, but somehow the gender thing is front and center. And then it sounds like you're suggesting that there are kids that just have these kinds of ambient feelings of disconnection with their, with the stereotypes of their sex and, and wind up in the clinics. How for that latter category, like, do we know what their backgrounds tend to be? Like, how are their parents deciding to take them there? What are they saying to their parents? What is the kind of typical, if there can be a typical scenario? of a kid in that category showing up in the clinic.
1: So the, the majority of the kids who are showing up now are the those, what they would call like the rapid onset gender dysphoria crown. These are these are kids who didn't really have any indication that they were trans when they were they were very young, or I don't like to use the word they were trans, but they didn't have this history of gender dysphoria really, or sometimes even not even a history of, of gender nonconformity. So the, the previous way that you would diagnose these kids for gender dysphoria was they had to start from like a very young age. I'm almost like, as soon as they can really start speaking and talking about themselves in any meaningful way, you know, three, four years old, they would have this very like genital focused hatred of themselves insisting that they were a boy, you know, without any prodding from, you know, having this, these ideas seated in them from the outside. Um, And this would be insistent, persistent and consistent up through their lives um and then it would continue through puberty and this is this is a cohort that was deemed um according to these dutch scientists it's called the dutch protocol these kids were deemed very unlikely to ever desist and they would overwhelmingly grow up to con- uh, to continue to identify as transgender now there's another cohort of kids who were would be very gender nonconforming um who would identify maybe Maybe they, they say they want to be a boy or a girl, the you know, the opposite sex. So that's how they kind of feel. But then by puberty, they would desist. And this is about 80% of the kids who, uh, who begin sort of this, have this dysphoric uh, aspect about them from very young. They desist right when puberty begins. And the vast majority of these kids grew up to be homosexual adults. Okay. But what we're seeing now is sort of this new cohort of kids, the rapid onset gender dysphoria kids who may have not had a history of gender dysphoria, no indication that they thought they were the opposite sex or anything. They tend to be very highly online, okay? They tend to have comorbidities. They tend to have high rates of ADHD, uh, autism spectrum disorder. A lot of times the girls will have eating disorders, anorexia, will have a history of cutting. Sometimes this will be in homes that are experiencing trauma. There'll be like a death in the family or a divorce uh, things like that, and then they sort of go into these online communities. Tumblr is a big one. There's some Reddit communities as well, and they they find these these communities that are really just uh, really doubling down on this this gender ideology that's according with stereotypes, where they they come to think of themselves as being trapped in the wrong body. It could also be the social contagion aspect and the whole definitional change. But this is really the group of kids that are the most vulnerable, and it's it's really I'd say I think I've read about maybe I've been up to 40% of these kids are somewhere on the autism spectrum. And we do know that autism spectrum is also associated with sort of more male-like behaviors. Uh, so that's why you get like a lot of girls who have autism tend to be more male-like in their in their behavior and their stereotypical behavior. So this could also be contributing to why they have that, you know, why gender ideology is really enticing to them because they're gender non-conforming. And so they come to see themselves as trans. Uh, so yeah, that, that's sort of the overview. Whenever I talk to moms and dads who have their kid comes out as non-binary or trans, it is, I can almost just like read the script of like, let me guess your kid is online. Your kid is, has autism or is you know, super bright ADHD, sometimes OCD. And it's just like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> down the, down the line. This is, it's, it's yeah, it, it's really, really predictable uh, What these kids tend to be what's going on.
0: And so what are these gender clinics? I'm hoping you can explain where they're based. You know, these aren't just like clinics down the street. This is not the, the Planned Parenthood clinic. Although I do want to talk about Planned Parenthood because you can get puberty blockers and testosterone at, at these places. If you're under eighteen, even I think so. I want to. I want to make sure we figure out what that's about. But when we say gender clinic, are we? We're talking often about uh like something af- associated with a large hospital.
1: Yeah, it can be like a subset of a hospital. There are some independent sort of practices that are that focus on gender. Planned Parenthood. You can go there and have annual you know, consultations with people there as well. But uh, it's it's usually associated with a with a hospital. It's like a segment within. The hospital, or somewhere on the hospital uh, grounds, they'll have a clinic that is dedicated to just these gender issues.
0: Okay, and something like Boston Children's Hospital—are they the the sort of leading edge of this? They're, were they the first youth gender clinic in the U.S.?
1: Oh, you know, I'm not sure if they're the first or not.
0: Definitely one of the most prominent.
1: Yeah, they would have been really prominent. Yeah, you know, in 2007 there were very few of these gender focused clinics, and they've really just exploded over the last 15 years. There's, I would say, o- uh, over 100 of them now. I mean, I think last time I I looked, there's, um, I think every state has at least one. So yeah, they've, they've really just, um, yeah, proliferated.
0: Okay. And so for a parent that ends up taking their child to a gender clinic, what has gone on in this parent's mind? Because I talked to a lot of people And they'll say, well, my child is in such obvious distress, and who am I to doubt them? And they also, I think, associate the transgender movement with the gay rights movement. And a lot of people at this point, most people certainly I know, support gay rights. And so these things all get sort of tied up into one package. So what kinds of conversations have you had with parents who embarked on this journey with their kids and it went one way or another.
1: Yeah, it, it usually totally blindsides the parents. Um, it is overwhelmingly moms that are, that are the focus of this for some reason, not in every case, but mostly the dads are in the sidelines while all this stuff's going on. It's spearheaded by moms. The mom usually just, they have, th- th- their their initial reaction is kind of being horrified at first because they might have, you know, if they have heard anything about trans kids or something, it's that their suicide rates are through the roof, that type of stuff, and so they they do what every mom would want to do. Well, one either they'll try to do some research on their own, and they'll go onto these Facebook groups to you know Google about you know my kid is trans type of things. Um, I've reported on some of these these Facebook groups and how they're just aimed at getting that kid to be transgender. If, if the mom goes into these groups and there. Not using the pronouns that their children suddenly wanted them to use, they're told that you know they're they're physically abusing their you know their their son if it's their if it's their daughter or vice versa, and they're just kind of strong armed in the social pressure in these groups to just sort of take your kid to the gender clinic they need to be put on puberty blockers uh it's It's really strong the social pressure so and any any parent, they would say, okay, we're gonna need to go and see the actual medical professionals. They know what they're doing. You know, who who am I to to second guess these medical professionals at the hospital? So they'll go to the gender clinics, but you know, the the main type of, you know, quote unquote care that they're they're given is what's called gender-affirming care. And this is sort of a broad term for just really not questioning whatsoever the the transgender identity of the kid who walks in there if the kid goes in and says uh you know they're they're a little boy and they want to be called a female name they have a new a new girl name they'll be referred to that they'll be referred referred to you know he or she her pronouns in there there is just there's there's no assessment beforehand it's just a completely accepting type of uh what they would call care that they're giving these kids but there's plenty of reason to believe that this this sort of social affirmation, this this beginning of a social transition, actually sort of solidifies their dysphoria in the end. The APA has gone on and said that other types of therapy, these more exploratory therapy to look at maybe what are the underlying causes that are uh, resulting in a kid claiming to have this transgender identity, you know, where is this coming from? You know, they might have had a history of trauma, can we investigate things? Or there's another model that's it's called watchful waiting. That's just you know don't don't affirm the kid's identity. Don't really deny it. Just sort of let them sort of work through what they're doing. Um, you know the APA has gone on and said, or sorry, the AAP has gone on and said that this is actually a type of conversion therapy uh, because you're you're not affirming the kid's transgender identity. You're trying to make them quote unquote cisgender. Uh, you have a, a goal in mind where most parents are really they're just thinking you know I if we can get my kid to be happy and comfortable in their own body, that would be a good thing. That would be uh, beneficial than this other path, which is sort of a a lifetime dependency on medication, uh, you know, and even possibly very invasive surgeries. So it's sort of all affirmation all the way. And so parents think their kids in many instances are getting these rigorous assessments and that, you know, they're going to be told that their kid isn't really trans because the the parents know them better than anyone else possibly does they raised them since they were you know just till they, since they gave birth um but a lot of these clinicians they'll just come back and tell them you know that they they just guide their kids down this pathway to transition even more and so this is a really big problem when you have these institutions like this that are that are captured by uh this ideology that just draws them in more cuz you sound like a crazy person if I'm saying, and like, don't listen to your doctor, don't listen to the American Psychiatric, Psychiatric Association or the Endocrine Society because they've been captured. Like I sound like the tinfoil hat wearer.
0: Well, that's yeah, and I, and the and it's the the ape the American Association of. P- pediatrics or the whatever it is. The, the pediatric associations have also they have um, endorsed the affirmative care model. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Because this is as I was listening to you talk. I mean, I know this subject very well. I've covered it a lot, but I can hear people. I can imagine people listening and saying, "Oh my gosh, this guy sounds crazy." They can't all be like this. It sound it sounds conspiratorial. Like the the idea that these institutions have been captured that all of these clinicians are under the sway of this, of this mentality that there's some kind of, th- these, are, these are downstream effects of some, kinds of some kind of, you know, new doctrine sweeping through what, like social work school? Like, so I want to I try to tease out, like, where is this coming from? Is this all coming from some kind of academic exercise founded by Judith Butler? And then it's going right down into, you know, exam rooms of random clinics in any given city in America. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did this all come to be?
1: That is a, a, a very big question. <laughs> it's it's really uh, complicated. You know, it's it's just sort of a perfect storm in many ways. I mean, we've had sort of the 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 buds of this, the seeds of this, that have been germinating in a lot of humanities departments. And you brought up Judith Butler definitely a big proponent of, you know, gender being a performance type of thing. Anne Fausto-Sterling talking about, you know, similar similar themes of uh, separating out sex and gender, and gender refers to you being a man or a woman or a girl or a boy. She specifically did a lot of work of trying to say that, you know, people are, the sex is a social construct, and we can only talk about degrees of maleness and femaleness and and then at the other side of her mouth, you know, you can just identify into these categories uh, across the board. There's the academic, I guess, queer theory component, which is, you know, an emergent field of within postmodern philosophy and social constructivism, uh, which talks about these, you know, it, it sets out to sort of blur the lines between any type of binary category because they think that these binaries were set up by people who have power who want to maintain oppression over groups and so these aren't real categories and so this queer theory really just goes in and tries to blur all borders they see in nature it's it's properly insane you know there's there's some there's some like nugget of truth to some of these ideologies where it's like you know it's good to show the edge cases of where things maybe your categories kind of break down but then they'll they'll find any amount of blur in a line and then they'll just extend the blur out to the entire picture, uh, which isn't really a good way to go about things. And then they've sort of hitched that whole trailer, all this this crazy postmodern philosophy that was you know really done away with during the the Sokol hoax, Alan Sokol, where he was sort of debunking a lot of this stuff in the physical sciences and physics and things like that that went away. you know he was largely debunked. But then these same sort of philosophical ideas then hitch their trailer to sort of the LGBT movement, and so you couldn't just disregard them as quacks now because they have sort of this rainbow shield that if you attack these ideas, you're considered to be anti-LGBT, anti-gay, and like nobody wants to be on that side of the the equation. You know, we we all know that the people who were against the gay rights movement were just evil people. And just for the record, I was very liberal and for gay rights and gay marriage and all that stuff. So I'm not coming from it from a conservative side or anything like that. Um, but it's made these ideas almost impossible to criticize now because they they really do just shield themselves as being, you know, synonymous with LGBT rights.
0: Yeah, but actually, right. But then when you think about it, it's actually it, counter to LGBT because a lot of these kids are gay. And it, this is a form of conversion therapy in some cases like they're transing the gayness out of them.
1: Exactly. Yeah, this this is something, this is a path that I've tried to go on to convince a lot of my left of center liberal friends about the problems with this whole ideology, because I do think it does run counter to their values. You know, it harms the gay community, because, you know, what does being gay even mean? It means being, you know, homosexual. Well, that means you're attracted to the same sex. Well, if sex is all of a sudden a spectrum and there's no such thing as male and female, then that means nothing. And now they actually define being homosexual as being attracted to the same gender identity instead of the same sex. And so you can have a male and a female couple that I would consider to be a straight couple are now considered gay. You can have males who are lesbians and uh, women who are gay men. Um, So yeah, (laughs) so it's it's, admires like a lot of these these, what I think were really good uh, victories for, for gay rights. It sort of, it layers on this, this thick, crazy ideology that I, it does not look good. And it makes people want to reject the entire thing because, you know, you can't have LGB without the T as they say. And, and, you know, LGB, that sort of segment of it, there's no ideological component whatsoever. It's just,
0: Right. You know, it's, not a political it's just, it's convention. just a sexuality.
1: Yeah. And people can sort of, you know, they might not themselves be same-sex attracted, but you can at least sort of imagine that someone could be attracted to a member of the same sex the same way you're attracted to the opposite sex. I mean, that's something we can just sort of, we can fathom it. But the T and the Q plus, you know, this has, this is where all that postmodern queer theory philosophy comes in that, you know, is this literally reality denying and it's a really hard pill to swallow, but we're told we can't separate these things.
0: Well, I also think it's confusing because transsexuals, as they used to be called, there are a lot of transsexuals of a certain generation that are separate from this movement. I think a lot of people can get their minds around the idea of feeling like you're in the wrong body and wanting to get a quote unquote sex change. So that's a, but that's a different category than the transgender movement, right? I mean, I've had people like, like you know buck angel on my on on this show who talks about being a a transsexual he says i'm a biological woman who's had surgery to and been medicalized to live as a man but that's but but he's also very wary of the the gender movement so i think yeah it's just it's it's really confusing to people
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean so i i give buck angel as an example two of of really the ideological shift because you know there's nothing that Buck Angel or people like Blair White, a trans woman, there's nothing that they're that they believe that is at odds with reality. You know, they have, they both would say they had a psychological condition that caused them to have this really strong psychological reaction to their sex body that caused them this immense amount of distress. And they decided and I think they were both over 18 when they did this, that they wanted to take steps to you know, appear like the opposite sex because it would just make them feel more comfortable. And that's something I have absolutely no problem with whatsoever. Like, more power to Buck Angel and Blair White. They seem to be like much happier than they would have otherwise been. Buck says, you know, this actually saved his life, that type of thing. Um, but they're not actually delusional about what it is that they went through and, and what they are, <laughs> where that's not really the case with the new ideology where they say, you know, trans women are literally women. They're biological women. You'll have people like Rachel McKinnon on TV saying that they're actually a biological female now because they simply identify as one. You know, that's, that's the idea, the ideology the, sorry, the, the ideological component that's been overlaid to this where um, I, I just think it's really going to just create a lot of backlash to this because you don't need to have this ideological component to be compassionate towards people who have gender dysphoria.
0: Well, exactly. That's what's really frustrating about it. I mean, it's going to undo it. I want to ask you about intersex conditions, because this is something that also comes up. People say, well, there are many, many more people with intersex conditions than we realize, and a lot of them are trans. I think, you know, I think and. Was it Anne Fastau Sterling? I I heard her speak actually one time, and I remember her saying something like there are as many people with intersex conditions as have red hair, something like that.
1: Yeah. That is a really common claim that's made. So she had a paper um th- that talked about, you know, it claimed to document the prevalence of intersex conditions, but their definition of being intersex, it was literally, I, I might be, this might be verbatim, like anything that deviates from the platonic ideal of being a male or a female. Um, so they had like these measurements of, you know, the, if the penis is not, you know, shorter than this, that's considered intersex. If the clitoris is above this length, that's considered intersex. They included so many of these, what are, you know, differences of sexual development, uh which are not really the same thing as being intersex, but they sort of included those in their umbrella. Things like there's something called hypospadias, which is some some males they have like, you know, they're a naturally looking penis, but uh their urethra is sort of sort of misdirected and it's coming out somewhere sort of on the underneath of their shaft or something like that. And they would consider these people intersex. Okay. Even though they're just completely biologically male, they just their urethra is just sort of in a maybe an inch lower on in the on the head of their penis than it would than it's supposed to be they also included things that really aren't intersex conditions at all but are just sort of these chromosomal i guess anomalies like someone who would have oh, that's
0: what i wondered about okay yeah say more about that yeah
1: so they would conclude people who are like x x y this is kleinfelter's uh syndrome which you know they might have these some some degree of secondary sexual characteristics of females they tend to have more like breast development and sort of wider hips and things like that but they are completely biologically male they have a penis and testes and many of them are able to father father children you know there's nothing that's actually not male about them you know there's this confusion that these different chromosomal anomalies these different arrangements and karyotypes that these are all the different sexes that's what people say like oh there's six sexes because you can have like XXXYXYYXXY X, y, y, X, X, y. you know these are actually examples of variations within the categories male and female they're not additional sexes beyond male and female you know it's it's like you know a person who has down syndrome has an extra chromosome i think it's an extra chromosome 21 you know that doesn't make them a new species because they have an additional chromosome that is now, you know, now they have as many chromosomes as chimpanzees. It doesn't make them a non-human and a chimp all of a sudden. It just means that they, they are, they're they still a human. They just have an extra chromosome. Similarly with sexes, just because you have, you're a male with an extra chromosome doesn't mean, mean you're not male or more female. It just means you're a male with an extra X chromosome. There's nothing sexually ambiguous about these. You know, there's someone... He wrote an article, Kimber's first name, his last name was Sachs, and he reanalyzed sort of Anne Foster sterlings data. And, you know, he said, like, there's just no clinical, doesn't make clinical sense to make people with Kleinfelter's syndrome or people with vaginal agenesis, where they just sort of have a shortened vaginal canal, like, these are still males and females. So he said, you know, when we actually define intersex as sex like uh, sexual ambiguity, you know, as the parents or mismatch between sort of their internal reproductive organs and how they're perceived on the outside. When we, when that's our definition, like actual sexual ambiguity at first glance, the rate of intersex is actually about 0.018% of the population, which is approximately one out of every 5,000 individuals, not 1.7% in the number of you know redheads there are in society. So that's just, yeah. And Foss sterling being loose with, with the definitions, but this, Actually, doesn't even like matter. Like the intersex could be one point seven percent, and that still wouldn't change the fact that there's still only two sexes. Because you know, someone who's sexually ambiguous still isn't something other than male. It's not a third sex. It's just sort of a a, a sexual ambiguity.
0: Right, because intersex is now an identity category because it's
1: LGBTQI. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They've, They've turned it into an identity. And they use the intersex people as this idea that sex is a spectrum, and therefore, you know, why is it wrong for males to compete in female sports, this type of stuff? And it's just like, okay, well, a a trans woman isn't intersex. Like, just because intersex people exist doesn't mean a trans woman who's unambiguously male can identify on the opposite side of that coin. It just just really doesn't make sense what they're trying to do, but they do try. (laughs)
0: We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wish there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. We're getting close to 100 episodes by now. I do this show every week, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I am not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And that is why, as much as I hate asking for help, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show. The best way to do this now is to join our listener community on the Substack platform. That means that even though you can listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, the community and listener support piece are now at megandaum.substack.com. And you spell my name M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M.substack.com. And what you'll find there includes not only stuff related to the podcast, but updates and information about everything I'm doing, including teaching, writing, the free thinking Women's Community, the easy that I'm starting, and anything else I think I should tell you about. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber and get all kinds of extras, including early ad-free access to the show, the chance to participate in monthly listener hangouts on Zoom that I always come to, and even new writing from me. Because actually, that is what I am, a writer. If subscriptions are not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast's old webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. Just keep in mind that it's the Substack page that will continue to be updated about the show. I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way that makes sense for you. Honestly, leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show and for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. The conventional wisdom, as far as I understand, has been, if it, if a kid comes in, is really suffering, the protocol would be to put them on puberty blockers. It's like a hit pause, stop puberty uh, for a couple of years while we sort of sort this out. And then if they decide they want to go back, we can just take them off the puberty blockers. If they want to continue to medicalize, they could do that. I want to know how often the puberty blockers Lead to things like surgery. Because here again, I think, like I said at the beginning, it's really confusing. Like, how often is this really happening? Because we have libs of TikTok showing us these pretty shocking cases of kids bragging about their mastectomies and gender surgeons being very glib about, you know, (laughs) lopping off breasts. Are we just seeing edge cases or is this like something that is actually more normal than not, or more common than not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you will get an overinflated sense if you're, if you're just watching <laughs> libs of TikTok, Twitter stream, you'll think it's, if you think all your neighbors are having either kids are having double mastectomies, you know, it's, it's not like every other household or anything like that, or maybe not even every other 10th household. Uh, it's, it's less than that. It's for sure. You know, we do know that when kids go to the gender clinic, so if they've at least gone to the point where they've been introduced to this gender stuff. They're confused because they read the gender-bred person that defined gender in this most insane way possible, where they're confused. Wait, what that is confusion... that a book?
0: You're saying they read the gender-bred person? What is the gender-bred person?
1: Oh, okay. The, the gender-bred person is this, like, an educational tool that a lot of schools will give, even in colleges, they'll use to sort of teach differences between, like, sex, gender, and sexuality. I want to read you their definition of uh gender identity for the gender bred person because it's like how could you not visit a gender clinic after you read this thing? Uh let me see if I can find it. They define gender identity. And this is what they're giving, you know, children. This is so common everywhere. Like it's I wouldn't be shocked if it's like over half of schools have this, especially if you're in a progressive area. Your kids are probably going to see the gender-bred person.
0: Or like elementary school
1: kids. Yeah, or the gender unicorn or the, the gender elephant. There's a few of these ones, but they're really, really common. So <laughs> this poster defines your gender identity. This is verbatim. I'm reading it right now. Uh, gender identity is how you, in your head, experience and define your gender b- based on how much you align or don't align with what you understand the options for gender to be. And that's okay. just... Yeah, I'm. I'm confused. I'm a thirty-seven-year-old I got to cut this interview man.
0: short and run to a gender clinic now. i so. <laughs> you
1: know, yeah, I'm great feeling great having Just reading this, so <laughs> that's that's going to confuse kids. It's going to confuse adults <laughs> about what their gender is, and then so if they do go to these gender clinics, you know, and they have the conversation about I'm just really confused, and, and we've seen the Philadelphia Children's Hospital talk about how like you know this is it's just a pause button if you want to just buy time to think about your your gender before puberty. So it's, they really do market these as like very, you know, we, we can just put you on these. It's no no big deal. But we have a lot of studies now about kids who are put on puberty blockers and more than 97% of kids who are put on puberty blockers continue on to cross-sex hormones. And that that combination alone will sterilize you if you haven't gone through puberty. So if you're, if your puberty is blocked, you haven't gone through puberty yet, and then you're put on cross-sex hormones, you will never be able to have biological children ever again.
0: And do we know why they are more likely to go on to cross-sex hormones? Is it because they like it? Is it because they stay in this kind of cultural ecosystem and they're talking about it all the time and thinking about it all the time? What, what causes it?
1: Yeah, I don't think we know exactly what causes it, but it's, you know, it it really just it stops your body's development. Your 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 hormones regulate so much about your body, your mood, your judgment on things, so many, you know, even bone health, all this stuff. Um it just seems to sort of yeah, I mean it's a pause button in a sense that it just pauses your body's development and and which includes your mind as well. So if you're having certain gender dysphoric feelings, then it's just going to kind of persist when you're put on these puberty blockers. I mean, your, your sex hormones in a way do contribute to your, you know, how you mature, how you come to understand yourself. And we just have this idea that these, these kids who are, you know, before puberty, that they're sort of these, these little philosopher Kings and they, they know themselves better than any adult does because they haven't been subject to this, you know, socialization as much. And these puberty blockers, they, for whatever reason, they tend to just sort of concretize this uh, this dysphoria that they may be experiencing in their lives. So I've brought this up before, but you know, it's it's nearly you know ninety seven percent of kids who are put on it go on to cross sex hormones. You know, if this were if the opposite were true, if if ninety seven percent of kids who are given blockers didn't go on to cross sex hormones, but instead returned and would maintain their quote unquote cisgender identity. A lot of these activists, they wouldn't, they would view this as its own type of conversion therapy because they're saying it's, it's more likely to make them cis than trans, but because it's makes them overwhelmingly trans, people use this as evidence that, oh, the doctors were right to give these kids, these puberty bloggers. That just shows that it was appropriate where I'm saying like, I thought this was a pause button to sort of, you could, you're on the razor's edge. You could go either way. Uh, but it does not appear to be the case.
0: Yeah, I have to admit I was mistaken about that. And another thing I was mistaken about is I I thought that there was really rarely, if ever, surgery being performed on kids under eighteen. Say so, but but learning what the WPATH guidelines now are, it seems like that's not the case. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So the WPATH. Standards. they're what's important to understand with them is they their guidelines, and they don't have. It's not like it's a law. It's not like if you break the WPATH uh, standards of care, their their guidelines that you've broken a law or anything like that. So already, even when the guidelines were out before, and they had these specific like age recommendations, that those weren't like an enforceable things. They were just sort of like a guideline that kids who are in this. AIDS are generally mentally prepared to have this type of surgery or take, you know, have puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, etc. You know, there had been plenty of examples of of kids who were having surgeries as invasive as a vaginoplasty at, at early as fifteen years old. I mean, really?
0: Okay, that's really true. Hang on, because that's that's really really true. Be- you're saying that's really true because I mean, I that's just shocking.
1: Yeah, there's there's. Papers, scientific papers, they talk about, it's about gender affirming hysterectomies and vaginoplasties, and they talk about the age range of their clients being between, I think it was 15 and 24, something like, I can't remember exactly what the range was. might've been a bigger range, but the lowest was like 15 on that, on that paper. Jazz Jennings, this has happened before the entire world was watching when Jazz Jennings had her, her, uh her vaginoplasty scheduled for when she was 16 it was supposed to happen at 16 but uh, jazz had to lose weight before she had it so it was it was postponed until jazz was 17 so this is something this is a person who had a vaginoplasty that was you know who was a minor that was for the entire world was watching when this happened
0: this is a reality in case anybody doesn't know who jazz Jennings is this is a reality show uh, about a transgender kid, and it's exactly, yeah,
1: quite, quite celebrated, it's wildly popular. So, I mean, the the claim that it's not happening to minors is just completely demonstrably false. You can look at the literature on it, the scientific peer review literature that talks openly about vaginoplasties being performed on kids as young as fifteen, and even phalloplasties. Not quite, I think. Maybe 16 is the the youngest I've seen on these, these peer-reviewed studies. And that
0: would be, sorry, okay, a phalloplasty is actually penis removal or just testicles. What does that mean exactly?
1: So there's several different kinds of phalloplasty. So um, a phalloplasty is someone that a, of, a biological female would have that takes the skin from elsewhere on their body, sometimes their thigh or their forearm, it creates a neophallus is what they call it. So it creates a a penis like phallus yeah, ar- around, you know, where where the penis would normally be. That's you, you have to have a hysterectomy before this.
0: Why? Why do you have to have a hysterectomy before that?
1: Um because when these are the female to male and so when you're taking testosterone, this, you know, the longer when you have long exposure to testosterone it actually begins to sort of eat away at your at your uterus and other aspects of your female reproductive anatomy, so usually about five years after people go on testosterone, they have to have a hysterectomy just because it can like start shedding and deteriorate, and it can cause you know you you can die if you don't have a hysterectomy after about five years oh my gosh, yeah no it's it's a big deal and i've I've talked to trans men who were not even told all this stuff about you know their hysterectomy they just they had extraordinarily bad. You know, felt like period cramps, and they went in, and then it turns out they had to have a hysterectomy. And oh, no one told you about this—that we you'd have to do this within five years. Yeah, so so you have to have a, a gender-affirming hysterectomy before you have the phalloplasties. But these these take place in in children. You know, there's uh, there's there's really no doubt about that. And WPATH, so their previous standards, I think their recommendation for phalloplasty was 18 before, then it shifted. Down about a year, they had they had a new so they they had these new guidelines come out recently. They sort of downshifted all of their age limits by one to two years across the board for everything. And then just about a week ago, they published this correction to that that eliminated age uh, requirements, well, age minimum suggestions, su- suggested age minimums across the board completely. So they no longer have these age these these suggested age minimums. And we know that the the w path they got rid of these minimum age recommendations across the board because during their their conference that they're having i think it's i think it just ended, but it was happening just this last week. They specifically said that they got rid of them because they wanted to make it less likely for practitioners to be sued for not following their guidelines to the letter okay so this was this wasn't really done. With the patients completely in mind, it was to minimize malpractice lawsuits to the doctors who are performing these on. And
0: they say this out
1: loud. They do, yeah. There's we got there's videos of this. I, I posted it on my Twitter when it came up there, and it's and it is completely textualized too. It's not like just a little clip taken out of nowhere. They go into detail about how it was like this this fine balance between minimizing malpractice lawsuits and maximizing uh, insurance money to pay for these types of surgeries. So they're literally just saying this like it's I'm not editorializing here whatsoever. You can look at the videos as they're online. I think there's some that were posted published by uh, the daily wire and you can see the, watch the videos for yourself on uh, that have been posted.
0: And I'm hearing this now. Oh, it was published by the daily wire. So of course, how can we trust that? Because, but the, the fact <laughs> yeah. is that the mainstream media reports on this extremely gingerly, if at all, uh, that's that's putting it charitably.
1: Yeah, they won't, they won't talk about it. And so that's why it's you know become sort of this right-left issue where people like me who are coming from the left, I can't get on any left-of-center program whatsoever. They've never even reached out at all. And then I get people calling me like, oh, I'm, I'm right-wing because I go on right-wing media. And I was like, well, it's not like I'm saying no to CNN or MSNBC. Like I would happily... <laughs> go on there. I prefer to. That's the audience I wanna I think needs to hear this more than anybody.
0: Right. So okay, are they making money? Because then we hear things like, well, this is big pharma, these are surgeons raking in the bucks. Like how how far down that rabbit hole do you go?
1: Yeah. Um, this is something that, you know, I know Jennifer Billick has done a lot of work on this. She's got a really great piece in Tablet Magazine um where she sort of followed the money trail and yeah it's it's pretty convincing you know i haven't connected all those dots um that's that's not usually what where i go that much but there was a a recent video from the Vanderbilt uh health network here in in Nashville where they talked about how they want to open the, the videos available online i think Matt Walsh shared it and it's a full the full length video And it was someone giving a presentation about how they need to open this gender clinic because, you know, these surgeries, they require, you know, a lot of operating room time. They require so many follow ups because of like the complications, you know, and this is and they make a lot of money. Like there's there's just like listing all the reasons why they need to open up these gender clinic services. And it was nothing about, you know, because kids needed or because people needed it It was because this is a really big moneymaker. So you know, take that with a grain of salt. That's one example. I can't say that this is the reason that all hospitals are doing it. I'm sure some people think that they're genuinely giving this really good care to to people. But uh, to say that money isn't a factor, I, I think that's insane. To think that you know a lot of people aren't in, just in this for you know making 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 money. And
0: insurance is paying. Insurance generally will pay for these procedures.
1: Yeah, they will. That's incredible. Yeah
0: are a lot of these clinicians transgender themselves
1: there are a lot more that are than in the general clinical uh, in the general population um but it's it's not done only by by trans trans people it's it's no it's it's not you know it's not like just trans people are doing this there's plenty of you know quote unquote trans allies who are doing this but allies
0: it's, right well cuz yeah it's definitely yeah obviously they're not all transgender but I feel like I saw a photograph maybe from that same Vanderbilt uh clip or and it looked you know there was a you know the the cast and crew of the the clinic and it looked very it looked like I was looking at a photo of like some LGBT club at some yeah.
1: liberal yeah. arts I mean, college yeah.
0: it was incredible there's definitely a lot yeah.
1: more I mean Marcy Bowers is one someone who's she's now the I think the president elect of W path now, and uh, she's a trans woman and she's perhaps given more of vaginoplasty surgeries than, than just about anybody. So well,
0: she's, she's the one that operated on jazz Jennings, right?
1: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true.
0: Okay. So, but I want to go back to, okay. So the, the phalloplasty is, does, that's the way, what you were describing earlier, that was for biological females becoming males. But the other way around is that also called phalloplasty, or is that something else?
1: That's that's the vaginoplasty.
0: Okay, okay. And how much more of this is happening in girls than in boys? Because I feel like initially the the, the whole ROGD concept, which is ROGD rapid onset gender dysphoria, is considered hate speech by by activists. Um, I think it was Abigail Schreier who at least was the first to. Talk about that in, in, in depth. Oh, no, actually, it came from Laura Littman's study, did it not? The rabbit on that. Yes, it, Laura Lisa, Lisa, Littman. Lisa Littman. Yes, pardon me. Yes. And she was absolutely vilified for it. Uh, are boys catching up? Because I feel like I'm seeing this more in boys now than maybe a few years ago.
1: Um, you know, I haven't seen recent data that suggests boys are catching up. You know, there there was already sort of that sex ratio flip. That occurred. So it used to be the case that boys were more likely to be transgender when they grew up. There was more transgender women than there were trans men. And then over the last decade, that ratio has flipped, where it's now, I think, either th- three to one or maybe three to two girls to boys who are identifying as the opposite sex now. So yeah, so it's it's mostly mostly girls who are identifying as boys nowadays.
0: Okay, but Jazz Jennings was a a boy yeah, transition to girl. Right. Okay. So I just want to make sure people under get their minds around this. So they are actually like removing, you know, penis removal of minors that is happening.
1: Yeah. They remove, so they'll do something called an orchiectomy, which is removal of their, their testicles. Uh, they'll want the main type of surgery for um, a vaginoplasty. It's so there's, there's several types it's amazing that I I know this stuff. I have to read so, so many of these types of articles. Um, so they have one that is a penile inversion. So they basically just invert the penis and that becomes sort of the new vaginal canal. In Jazz Jennings' case, since Jazz went on puberty blockers um, you know, before they had started puberty at all, uh, their their penis had not developed to the point where it could actually be used uh as to to form the lining of the vagina. And so what they did in jazz's case and what they do for a lot of kids who are trying to transition and they they went on puberty blockers beforehand is they actually take a bit of the colon and that is, that's what becomes the new vaginal cavity, uh, in them. So there's, it depends on how much material there is to work with, which determines what type of material they use to make the new vagina. Sometimes they'll even take, uh, Bits of a intestine from cadavers now i've I've been hearing that that can happen,
0: wow, and the complication rate is pretty high, we know that It's
1: incredibly high, yeah, there's you know phalloplasty is the I think the highest complication rate. it's in the sixty percent, but that's you know that encompasses all of the different types of things that can go wrong. Some of the things are you know they say minor, but they'll see like minor issues are like a fistula, which is sort of like a connection between two different organs or two different you know, like your urethra and your colon or something, or they'll have stitchers, which is like, they will it's a, what am I trying to say, scar tissue that can build up in their new, newly created urethra, which blocks it. And so they have to have that kind of carved out. There's just there's so many things that can go wrong. Um, and if they decide that they want to have these implants put in their new, you know, neophallus, so they can sort of pump it up to get what something that resembles an erection they can, but those can only be in there for up to three years before they need to be replaced. And so there's just, there's so many follow-ups and so many complications that can go wrong with these surgeries. But the, in the literature, when they talk about this, they'll say like, we had like a low complication rate, you know, it was 30%. I'm just like 30%. Like this is a complication rate on one of like the most invasive types of surgeries you can get. This isn't like, you know, if, if I was having LASIK surgery, you know, I'm, I'd be worried if it was like 1% complication rate, because it's such a sensitive part of your body, like your eyes and vision. Uh, but they 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 tend to talk about, you know, 30% complication rate as something as invasive as removing your testes and creating a new penis on you or something as being sort of a low, a low complication rate.
0: They will frame this as life-saving surgery, because ostensibly the kids will become suicidal if they can't transition. And that that data point has been debunked. Correct.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's sort of the narrative that is, that is commonly given, you know, parents are told that, you know, you, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son, you know, depending on the sex of their child, um, which, you know, scares them into just affirming all the way. And I don't want to come across that I'm against phalloplasties and vaginoplasties across the board. Really? Like my, my criticisms is just has to do with, with children in the, in these situations. It's like, you know there's maybe some issues with i th- with I think the ideology being used to get insurance to pay for these procedures, which I think are just largely well they are cosmetic there's another debate of whether insurance should cover these even for adults in some cases, but at least for children, absolutely not. I don't think we should be having these types of surgeries just because the ideology that they're based on is completely ridiculous uh the data that you know there's no good long term data about if these are actually contributing to their mental well-being in the future, or actually reducing suicide. And they're largely experimental. And the regulations on these things are nearly non-existent. I mean, and they've just gotten more, more non-existent now that you don't have the guidelines even giving minimum age recommendations anymore.
0: What do you think this is going to look like in 10 years? Are we going to be looking back at this and saying, oh my God, or is it going to take longer than that?
1: Well, I mean, a, a lot of people are saying that <laughs> right now. Yes,
0: I am. But I say we, you know, is, is, is NBC News finally going to catch up? Are there going to be lawsuits? Are we going to look back at this the way we looked at the recovered memory uh, syndrome?
1: Yeah, I, I do think so. I mean, this is, it, it, ha- it, it has to, you know, it's going to butt up against reality at some point. At some point, you just, the amount of detransitioners, the people who are harmed from this, you can't just, keep them locked up forever and not talk about them. I mean, Chloe Cole is someone who's been speaking out against this stuff. She's a detransitioner, had a double mastectomy when she was, I think, 14 or 15. And, you know, she's speaking about this. But when you when you look at sort of the the left wing media, it's just crickets. You don't even see any rumblings that this is going on whatsoever.
0: Well, there was okay, but there was a big piece by Emily Bazelon in the New York Times. Magazine that is true, yeah. This past summer, and I mean, it was she's a great reporter, but it was pretty anodyne. I wonder what you thought of that piece.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since I read it. I remember, I remember enjoying it at least, at least that they were entertaining. I mean, it
0: was amazing that it, it was published in the New York Times.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they at least took some of the opposing views as you know serious concerns to some degree. Uh, it wasn't just these are a bunch of transphobic bigots. So. So that was that, that's refreshing. I mean, the New York Times has done some stuff. I can't remember the other one guy who writes about, he's written about some of these these topics. There's there's some...
0: Well, Jesse Single wrote about it in, in The Atlantic, and he's been tarred and feathered ever since. Yeah,
1: there was a recent piece in the Boston Globe by Lisa Sellen Davis, which is excellent. She's one of my favorites. So it is, it is happening. I mean, it's just, it's going to be slow, but it's compared to where we were four or five years ago when I started on this stuff. We are just in so much a better place because so many people are even are aware of the problem now before no one was even aware of the problem now Now people are aware they're just trying to get the word out and trying to break that sort of media bubble that you have on the other side. Not to say that there's not one on the other side too, but you know on this issue the other the the left has been very hesitant to even sort of acknowledge. Any of it going on. So I think that's that's gonna change.
0: Yeah, and that was the what Lisa was saying in the Boston Globe. The the left really has to step up and start talking about this because otherwise the right, the political right is gonna do all the talking. And that we, we if if the Matt Walshers of the world are the only ones speaking up, then that's not gonna really help help very much. Why do you think that the activism is so extreme. I think that it's because there, there are all these mental health issues within this particular cohort of people who have gender dysphoria or enter into this arena and for whatever reason, and then they act out on social media. We're, we're seeing a whole bunch of mental health issues coming out, and they come out in the form of very, very toxic activism.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, it's the people who tend to be the most virulent, I guess, are a lot of these, you know, the, the auto-gynophile trans women people.
0: Oh, yeah. We didn't even get into that.
1: Yeah, that's a whole other thing. They, they tend to be, in my experience, the most venomous because, you know, actually, I'm not sure why that is. I have like maybe some ideas of why that might be, but I don't know if
0: Oh, might have to bring you back or do some bonus content.
1: <laughs> and so there's 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 all kinds of personality reasons why you might think that what why they're so uh sort of rabid online about this stuff. But another thing is I think is that you know, the the further your ideology is from reality, like the less you have to gain from a rational public discourse. I mean, they if they were to sit down with a lot of these people who talk about these issues. In a one-on-one conversation, where you know you have just a moderator there to make sure people aren't, you know, being violent or something, they would not fare well (laughs) in an actual one-on-one open debate about this topic, where they can, you know, they can't squirm out and block you on Twitter or something. And so when you know when you don't have the sort of reason and evidence on your side, well, you you there's a lot of other levers to pull that are not reason and evidence, and one of those are is just to talk about your opponents as being the bigoted transphobes that they are, and they're out to, you know, get your children. They're trying to withhold life-saving care from from kids. Uh, these are bigots. They need to have their, you know, their platforms shut down because they're promulgating medical uh, misinformation. You know, anything but having the actual conversation is what they try to do because, as I said, they they really, they would not fare well in the conversation, that would just be a major sort of emperor's naked emperor moment for them if they if they were to subject themselves to that.
0: Well, the whole thing is a naked emperor movement. And it's just astonishing the way that big institutions and otherwise reasonable people are going along with it.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's, I had to it's take a while to, to realize that I'm, I'm actually don't think I'm the tinfoil hat person out there, but it's, it is a really bad position to be in where you're disagreeing with a lot of the major institutions on this issue because, yeah, I mean it's well we' we're
0: disagreeing with what they think they think, though, like they can't even really if they actually followed closely, they couldn't possibly think what they are saying
1: exactly, yeah, so yeah, this is, I mean that's what I'm engaged in is just trying to speak as clearly as i as I possibly can and try to debunk a lot of the the things that I guess I'm qualified to talk about, which is a lot of the sex spectrum stuff um, because I have a biological background. But really a lot of this stuff is just, it should be debunkable with common sense. Like I I shouldn't need a PhD to talk about that there's only two sexes and it's not a spectrum or a social construct. I mean, these are things that are abundantly obvious to toddlers, um, but somehow we have to, you know, talk about this, uh, Specific thing. And I still get people say, I'm not qualified to talk about these because I studied insects and I, I can't even talk about humans. <laughs> That's the position we're in right now. Well, before
0: we wrap up, I'm just curious what kinds of things have happened to you for speaking up? Have you been, has this hurt you? Has it hurt your career or have you been able to carve something out that works?
1: So it, it tanked my academic career. So I was writing a lot of these articles and when I was at Penn State, I had a piece that came out in the the Wall Street Journal called The Dangerous Denial of Sex. And then some pieces in Quillette that came out around the same time. And this caused a really major backlash where people called my university and I had the diversity people there say that, you know, the students felt like they were unsafe on campus just because I was there. People went on to these job boards in my field and were posting jobs on the, it's called the Eco Evo Jobs Wiki. It's the place where anyone in evolution and ecology posts and looks for jobs and stuff. So there's like thousands of people on this at any one moment. And people were just posting jobs that said, you know, Colin Wright at Penn State and the job title was all caps. You know, Colin Wright is a transphobe race scientist. Don't hire him. Which, you know, could take a day for these things to get off because I'd have to contact the board manager person. Race science. Really? Oh. Yeah, yeah. And people were sending emails to departments that I was applying to, you know, calling me these names and not to hire me. So I ended up, you know, I know that people on hiring committees do look at social media and things like that. And so uh, I just didn't think it was, I had no confidence that m- I would, my CV would be looked at, you know, just by its merits and they wouldn't factor in sort of the things I've been writing about. And I even spoke to people who, were the chairs at their university departments who said that they would like to hire me, but you know I wouldn't get by their HR because they have to look at the applications first. And they said there's just no chance that I would get past that because it would be considered too risky. And so I just said, you know, screw this because I don't want to like double down and work on my research here when I don't think that I'm in, really in control of my own future. You know, I don't think my hard work's going to be, you know, given back to me in terms of here's a here's a job. Uh, so I decided to go out on my own. I worked for Quillette for two years as their managing editor. Um, I worked very briefly at FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And uh, then I, I left and just went completely independent uh, to write on my substack and uh, sort of make it a magazine that focuses on on these issues uh, almost entirely. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm in a good spot because it's I'm pretty much uncancelable and I'm able to, to pay the bills. So I'm pretty happy.
0: Well, that's good. So tell tell us where we can find you. Uh tell us about your, your Substack, your publication. How do we get to it?
1: Yeah, so the the publication, it's it's called Reality's Last Stand, and it's realitieslaststand.com. And that's really referring to the fact that if you can deny the reality of males and females as real uh natural categories, then there's just you know, that's that's reality's last stand because there's nothing else that can't be denied if if we let that slip through our fingers so that's that's the reason for that title
0: maybe gravity maybe gravity would be right up there with that yeah
1: yeah that's that's next or the the world is round (laughs) but uh i talk a lot you know i have people biologists will come on there and they'll write about the biology of sex and you know debunking things like the sex spectrum or why there's two sexes or just talking about sex differences in general uh i'll have pieces that are talking about gender ideology and criticizing different aspects i have feminists coming on talk about women's sex-based rights, just sort of everything in this whole sex and gender sphere is what the Substack and publication is dedicated towards. And then if you want to follow me on social media, both Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at Swipe Right, and that's W-R-I-G-H-T, uh, my last name. That's
0: because it's your last name. It's not because you're on the right. It's not because exactly, you're on yeah. the political mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah not it's that. It's W-R-I-G-H-T. Okay. Well, Colin, thank you so much for being on the show. I've, I've covered this a lot, but I haven't had anybody go into the science and medicine in such detail. So I'm really grateful to you for, for being able to do that.
1: I'm so glad to have been here. I, I, I want to say one of your essays early on, I think it was maybe around 2017 or 18, where you wrote about sort of John McWhorter and nuance. Glenn Lowry. This is,
0: Yes. Nuance, a love story. This is where everybody... That was in two thousand eighteen. Yeah,
1: that really uh, was a, a major article that I read. I remember reading it and just like almost cheering, and not feeling so alone when I read it. So it was very influential. And so thank you for for writing that. That was it was really uh, formative, I think, for me in many ways. Well,
0: thank you. It's, I hear that a lot, and you know what? I'll tell you, nobody that was published on Medium. And not a single mainstream publication would take it. I wrote it and I sent it every single place, all of which I'd written for before. I have relationships with all these places I've been writing for magazines for decades. Nobody would run it. And uh, it was on Medium and it's the most viral piece I've ever published in my career. So
1: it's amazing. Isn't it? Thank you for writing that.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks for reading it. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope you'll come back sometime.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Colin Wright. He is an evolutionary biologist and the author of the newsletter, Reality's Last Stand. This is the Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack, as I have been telling you a lot lately. It's also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Nothing has changed. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined please also check out my new podcast with Sarah Hayter, A Special Place in Hell. That's on Substack and also everywhere else. Please consider uh, quitting your job or uh, never even getting out of bed at all so you can just lie around and listen to all these podcasts. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.